Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll & Mooring, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. In the next few podcasts, we will focus on FCA risks related to the COVID-19 pandemic. On today's episode, Jacinta and I are going to discuss the FCA risk posed by the $175 billion Provider Relief Fund that was established by the CARES Act and further supplemented by the Paycheck Protection and Healthcare Enhancement Act. As most of you are aware, the trend in recent years shows quite a heavy emphasis on Healthcare False Claims Act matters, and the Provider Relief Fund will likely present fertile ground for Relators Council and DOJ alike to pursue recoveries on various FCA theories. Jacinta, can you kick us off with some additional background for the Provider Relief Fund? Thanks, Mana. Absolutely. So one thing I just want to say kind of right off the bat in terms of oversight here, and to put this in perspective, every recipient who choose to retain the funds will be publicized publicly on a list on the CDC website. So anyone can access that. And as of right now, there was actually a letter from Senators Grassley and Schumer requesting that more data be added. But at least as of now, you can see the entity name, the state, and the amount of dollars. So just something to keep in mind in terms of visibility here. The $175 billion Provider Relief Fund, which may actually be further supplemented in future COVID-19 targeted legislation, but right now it's $175 billion. It's split between a $50 billion general allocation and a series of targeted allocations that have varying amounts. HRSA, which is a part of HHS, is in charge of administering the fund and distributed the first $50 billion, the general allocation, to eligible recipients in two main tranches. Both of those were in April. In addition to the general allocation, as of the date of this recording, HRSA has announced, and they have done so on a rolling basis since April, nine separate targeted allocations, and there's more expected in the coming weeks. Examples of these allocations include allocations specific to skilled nursing facilities or SNFs, safety net providers, providers who primarily receive Medicaid and CHIP funding, and providers with a significant number of COVID patients or hotspot areas. There are also allocations to cover the provision of COVID-related care for those providing care who have no insurance. This funding has hastily been distributed to eligible providers, and all the distributions require attestations to very specific but also vague terms and conditions. They have novel requirements as to the appropriate use of the funds and so has created quite some difficulty in trying to actually apply the terms and conditions to real-world uses. In addition, there'll be periodic reporting on the use of these funds. It's required by the statute and the secretary has additional discretion in specifying that. We're still awaiting further details from HHS on it. We're anticipating there to be some explicit certification language, but there's a lot unknown here. As shown throughout FCA enforcement actions, especially at times of economic downturn like now, the provision of federal funds tied to attestations and certified reporting result in heightened government oversight and enforcement, as well as actions from the relator bar. We expect that to remain true here from Congress all the way up and down the chain. Absolutely, Jacinta. While the various allocations all have some uniquely applicable terms and conditions and vary in eligibility criteria, there are many that are consistent between them. So, for example, whether an entity received a distribution from the general allocation or one of the targeted allocations to skilled nursing facilities, 
or applies for a distribution from the Medicaid and CHIP allocation. The money must be used to prevent, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus. So that part is an express certification and it's a statutory requirement that cannot be modified or waived. Importantly, HHS has explained that it broadly views all patients as potential COVID-19 patients. So as a result of that, any use of the funds related to patient care can be attributed to the coronavirus during this time. And then drilling down a bit more, all the funds must be used for necessary healthcare-related expenses or lost revenues attributable to the coronavirus. Again, this is also a statutory requirement that cannot be waived. Yeah, Iman, just to add there, importantly, even if you fit in one of these categories, so let's say you are treating patients and you've treated patients at least at some point after January 2020, and you have either lost revenues or even if you don't have lost revenue, but you have expenses that are healthcare related and necessary that are attributable to the coronavirus, you still have to comply with a number of other terms and conditions. One of the most overarching ones is that the money cannot be used for expenses that are otherwise obligated to be reimbursed by or, in fact, reimbursed by other sources. Other sources isn't defined. There is some additional guidance on it, but through communications with HRSA that I've had, as well as in some of the facts, it's certainly understood to be third-party payers and questionable whether there are other categories that would fit in this other sources bucket. Some of the other prohibitions include you can't use the money for executive level salaries, or rather salaries over executive level two, which is currently set at $197,300. You can't use it for lobbying. There's a whole host of these prohibitions. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's quite a bit. Some of the more overarching ones also include There's out-of-pocket payment restrictions, so entities must agree not to seek out-of-pocket payments from COVID-19 patients that would be greater than what the patient would pay for in-network rates. There's a prohibition on balanced billing. There's other reporting requirements, as we've talked about, and those are still being flushed out. But in addition to the reporting requirements, there are also recording requirements. And a lot of people tend to think that these are kind of one and the same, but they're really not. Even despite what you might have to send in a report, you have an obligation still here to maintain appropriate records that may be broader than what's requested in a report and maintain cost documentation that substantiates the reimbursement that you applied these funds to. This way on audit, even if it wasn't something you put in your report, you could answer the question of an auditor, you know, was this really justified? So, you know, the bottom line here is it's critical to review all the terms and conditions applicable to the particular distributions that your entity has received, recognizing that there's some differentiation with different parameters between them, including the methodology for distribution. And that methodological differentiation, if you received more money than you were supposed to, based on the method that HHS espoused, then that also could present various FCA risks here. The assessment of whether a use for how you want to use this money is permissible and compliant can be incredibly nuanced and fact-dependent. We have been able to obtain additional guidance in the form of those facts that I mentioned earlier through conversations that we've had with HRSA, and that's been helpful. But there's still some details, a lot of the finer details that need to be worked out. 
And so given what's at stake, please don't hesitate to reach out if you have uncertainty with respect to specific uses. In addition to providing analysis based on our experience here, clients have also found it helpful to have us acting as an anonymous facilitator to seek additional guidance from HRSA in particularly novel and thorny issues and situations. Couldn't agree more, Jacinta. Compliance with these terms and conditions and documenting that compliance with them is really step one in mitigating any FCA risk here. We do know that the HHS secretary announced that all recipients will be required to submit documents sufficient to ensure that the funds were used for healthcare-related expenses or lost revenue attributable to the coronavirus, and also stated that there will be significant anti-fraud and auditing work done by HHS, including the work of the Office of Inspector General. So, switching gears a bit here, let's discuss some of the potential FCA theories that we may see pop up in relation to the use of these provider relief funds. First of all, the various attestation, certification, and reporting requirements tied to provider relief funds make them ripe for FCA investigations and actions under an express false certification theory. But it's important to keep in mind that potential FCA liability for use of these funds can arise not solely based on the express certifications that are found to be material and knowingly false, But violation of the many terms and conditions can also give rise to FCA liability when an impliedly false certification material to payment is found to be untrue. So consider as well the many terms and conditions attached to taking these funds that Jacinta just discussed. While it is unclear to what extent reporting requirements will require express attestations or certifications to meeting certain terms and conditions, A provider's report may be construed as implied compliance with certain of those terms and conditions, even those to which the recipient of funds has not necessarily expressly certified. And so, as a result, the violation of those terms and conditions could potentially lead to liability for implied false certifications. Another issue is that in assessing the broad language used in the terms and conditions of the provider relief fund, Funding recipients should be leery of vague and ambiguous provisions. As Jacinta discussed, there's a lot of room for ambiguity in interpreting some of the provider relief provisions, and ambiguity can be fertile grounds for generating claims under the FCA, especially when it comes to whistleblower suits. But on the bright side, for recipients, the federal courts generally hold that a defendant will not face FCA liability for violating a vague or ambiguous law, regulation, or contractual condition if the defendant's interpretation of the condition was objectively reasonable and there's an absence of agency guidance to the contrary. So as a result, it's important to keep in mind what the evolving guidance states and for funds recipients to be aware of that. Finally, fund recipients also need to be aware of potential liability under a reverse false claims act theory. So under 31 U.S.C. section 3729A1G, the FCA creates liability for anyone who knowingly conceals or knowingly and improperly avoids or decreases an obligation to pay or transmit money or property to the government. So under that provision, the FCA's reach is quite broad. It's not just limited to affirmative requests for funds, but also extends to the knowing retention of overpayments or what we call reverse false claims. So a provider might be subject to FCA liability for failing to return funding provided by the government that it was not entitled to 
or did not need to address covered COVID-19 issues. And as a result, recipients of funding cannot just simply take the view that if HHS deposited the funds into the organization's account, that the entity organization was therefore officially entitled to them. So, Ma, I think that's all exactly right here. A lot of folks have said, you know, they have to do the attestation. Now it's within 90 days of receiving funds. And we've had various questions of, well, what if we just don't sign the attestation? Can we avoid liability here? You know, we didn't ask for the money to be put in our account. It was just deposited. But HHS has specifically come out here and said, if you don't attest and you don't return the money within 90 days, then it's a deemed acceptance of those terms. So definitely a potential reverse false claims issue if you use that money in any way that's found to be not compliant with the associated terms and conditions. So where does that leave us? It it all begs the question, what can we do now to help mitigate the future False Claims Act risk here? And this is an FCA-focused podcast, but really all of this will help with other auditing as well, even not in FCA context, but in other civil monetary penalties or other auditing issues. So one of the things that you can do, and again, anything you can do to show good faith efforts to comply will help support your defenses later if you are the unfortunate subject of an enforcement action, whether it's either or investigation that doesn't end up becoming a full-blown FCA suit, whether from Department of Justice or from a whistleblower. Those good faith efforts can help support your defenses later. So one thing, and this is sort of uh, foundational, is to establish a policy or procedures that are specific to the entity and the funding that that entity received. The key here is that this needs to be uniquely tailored. There's not a one-size-fits-all. What's ideal for a multi-state hospital system that received $100 million in funds is going to be overkill for a small provider group, for example. And again, these are best practices. By no means am I saying these are must-haves from like a compliance standpoint in terms of an absolute obligation, but they are best practices and things to put your organization in sort of the best footing going forward. Another recommendation would be to assign an internal resource to administer the policy. For some, this may be assigned to the compliance department or a CFO. But either way, depending on your organization, whoever would be the best suited, it would be someone who's specifically tasked with monitoring compliance with the policy and the applicable terms and conditions, including accurate and current record keeping of your organization. This person would sort of be the gatekeeper for reviewing submissions to the government for the quarterly periodic reports that will be due, at least if you received an aggregate over $150,000, but there may be other reporting even if you receive less. And this individual will help identify and or at least ensure training or education of those who are involved in expending funds to make sure that at the clinical level or the operational level that everyone understands what the limitations are and knows to ask questions if there's uncertainty about using the money for a particular expense. Other key points here is to document contemporaneously and in an easily retrievable format so that you don't have to go back and try to recreate the wheel. It helps with accuracy, it helps with effort, and it helps to show it's not just a post hoc rationalization because an auditor comes knocking or an investigation is launched. And then lastly, just to highlight again, if there's areas of specific uncertainty Identify those to better determine next steps, whether that's seeking guidance from counsel, 
following up with HRSA, the provider relief line. Maybe it's a position letter that would disclose, hey, here's what we're doing. We can't get clear guidance here. Let us know if you agree or disagree. And this way, at least you've disclosed what's happening and you can await further guidance to see if HRSA or HHS disagrees. And that's really, I mean, those are some of the main points here. There are others that may be helpful depending on your institution, but those tend to be best practices applicable to a wide array of potential recipients here. Thanks, Jacinta. That was quite a comprehensive summary of some of the practical tips to prepare yourselves for audit and avoid you know, possible enforcement actions. So just in quick summary, one of the most important things here is for recipients to carefully consider how to document the particular uses of relief funds to meet the government conditions. And documenting in a contemporaneous manner is critical so that organizations can avoid post hoc explanations or scrambling to find documents months and even years after the funds were actually received. And one of the specific things you can do in support of your documentation is collect your supportable financial data to show that the organization either suffered a loss of revenue or used the money for a necessary healthcare-related expense that can be attributable to coronavirus. Ultimately, if you do that, that's going to be really important to substantiate the use of the relief funds to support your ongoing operating expenses during this public health emergency. And again, maintain these information in advance of any potential audits or other kind of actions. Great. Thanks, Mona. And that's all we have for today's episode on Let's Talk FCA. Please tune in for additional episodes on other FCA considerations in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. If listeners have any follow-up questions on these topics, please feel free to reach out to Mana at 213-443-5563 or me at 202-624-2573. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca. 